Our reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, thank you very much, Catherine, for reading for us. I encourage you to keep Philippians chapter 3 open. We're going to work our way through it, uh, but let's pray uh, before we begin. Oh God, our Father, we believe that your word is inspired by the Holy Spirit through the human author. As well, O oh God, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, uh, his power this evening, one to, for me, to, as I proclaim your word, that I would do so faithfully, but for all of us, as we hear what your word says, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive your word gladly and to do what it says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you um, have the service sheet in front of you, on the back you'll just see uh, just an outline of where we're going to go this evening. And you'll see at the top there just a question. What can derail you in the Christian life? What has potential to take you off track? What's dangerous to you in your walk with the Lord? Well, let's ask the question corporately. What will derail us as a church, what will stop us from fulfilling God's purpose for us? As we've been through Philippians over the last couple of weeks, we've heard really clearly what God's purpose is for us. It's in chapter 1, verse 27. You can see it there just on the other side of the page. Here's God's purpose, that we are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
That's the purpose, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what can derail a church from that purpose? What are the dangers to us? There are several things that you may answer to that question. One obvious one would be persecution. If everyone's against us, then we might cave in. If we lose friends, if we get ridiculed, or worse, if we get oppressed or prosecuted by the powers that be, then we fear that we may well pack it up and give in. Persecution. That's, that's certainly a danger that the Philippian church faced. They had opponents. There was hostility towards Christians and towards churches. And Paul himself, as he writes the letter, he's in prison for preaching about Jesus. And so persecution, that can derail them. That might make them shrink back. That's one option. Another might give this answer. How about suffering? Life can be really hard, and that can derail us. If life gets hard, well, we might find that we can't cope with it all and give up serving God. We might cease to trust God and his goodness, and instead of striving for the sake of the gospel, well, we may take a seat on the sidelines. Of course, again, the Philippians knew suffering. We read last week of just one of their members, a guy called Epaphroditus, who had been sick and almost died serving Christ. And for us who are in the middle of this pandemic, where life has been really hard for many of us, well, we may be tempted, mightn't we, to pull back as a church, to slow down in God's mission. Suffering can derail us from standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But actually, as we've read through the letter of Philippians, Paul's made it clear that those two dangers of suffering and persecution, well, they need not derail us. He writes of his imprisonment in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And indeed, he instructs the Philippians in chapter 2 that they need not be frightened in any way by their opponents and that it's been granted to them that for the sake of Christ they should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So Paul sees the dangers of suffering and of persecution and in them he sees God's hand at work to achieve his purposes. So they are dangers, but perhaps they're not as great as we think they might be. Now there's a third danger in the letter, and it's actually a bigger danger, and it's an internal one, that of disunity or infighting. Now Paul's definitely picked that up as something that might take us off track. We find ourselves grumbling and complaining about each other. And we lose then this ability to strive side by side. We're not striving side by side at all. We're pulling in different directions. And there are signs that perhaps the church in Philippi has started to give way to this danger. Perhaps they're wandering down that road. And so Paul writes to bring them back on track to ensure that they are united. And so he says, you need to have the mind of Christ looking always to the interests of others instead of to your own. And there's more on that danger of disunity in chapter 4. So three dangers, three things which might derail us, suffering, persecution, and a bigger one, disunity. But now as we come into chapter 3, Paul says there's actually another danger 
And perhaps this one's not one that we'd have thought of, but he reserves his strongest language in the letter for it. And the danger is this, it's the danger of misplaced joy. Of joy placed not in the Lord, but in other things. And Paul, in his language in this passage, makes clear just how serious it is. You can see where we're going on the handout there. Verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The theme of joy is one which is sown as a kind of golden thread throughout the letter. Paul's all about joy. He's always rejoicing. And it's pretty remarkable given that he's in prison at this very moment. He's told them in the last part of chapter 2, which we saw last week, to welcome their friend Epaphroditus, who's returning to them with the letter. Two verse uh, I've got the wrong verse there. <laughs> uh, in the Lord, with, he says, Welcome your friend Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. That's 2 verse 29. Welcome him in the Lord with all joy. And so he has this joyful reunion in his mind. And that leads us into chapter 3, verse 1, where he gives this command to rejoice. Now, the word finally there at the beginning of uh, verse 1, it, it doesn't quite capture the sense of that word. It's really, it's more like sort of further. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Where are we to rejoice? Where is our joy properly placed? Well, it's placed in the Lord. Paul's not saying there's no other joys in life. He's just pointed to one, the reuniting of old friends, but it leads him to remember that the only true lasting joy that we can have in this world is found in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus himself. So far, so good, but it does get a little bit puzzling in the rest of verse 1. He says that the writing to them of this joy in the Lord will keep them safe. Do you notice that? Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, when I started to look at that this week, I was a bit, to be honest, I, I'd never noticed the word safe before in that verse. It means to be firm or secure or protected. And to be honest, I didn't really know uh, what to do with it. Brings questions to our minds. Well, safe from what? And how does joy in the Lord connect to keeping us safe? It's a bit of a puzzle. Well, here's the connection, I think. Safety, of course, implies some kind of danger, doesn't it? We're kept safe from something dangerous. So joy in the Lord will protect us from danger. Now, where's that danger coming from? Well, look out. Here comes verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, who's Paul talking about here in such uh, glowing terms? Well, he's talking about people 
whom we might call Judaizers. So these are people who do not believe that a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. What they say is, in addition to faith in Jesus, you also need to perform certain Jewish religious works, especially circumcision, that's the big one. Uh, You need to do those things in order to be saved. They are gospel plus, they add conditions for salvation. And so they preach a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. Now just to say, for those of us who've been following through the whole series of uh, Philippians, this is a different group of people to those in chapter 1, verse 18. If you remember, those people, they preached Christ out of selfish motives. But they at least proclaimed the gospel faithfully. And so Paul, although he didn't think that was right, that they were selfish motives, he could at least rejoice that they were preaching the gospel faithfully. But those people must have been a different group to the ones he's talking about in chapter 3, because look at how he speaks of these Judaizers here. He insults them three times. They called the Gentiles dogs. Now, I know a lot of us got our pet puppies at home and we're really, really fond of them and we think they're really cute. But to a Jew, a dog was a street animal. It was covered in fleas. It ate anything and everything from the bins. It's unclean. So these people, they claim to be so clean, so pure, but in fact, Paul says, they're as unclean as dogs. It's an insult. And the next insult is even worse. See, they felt they were righteous due to their pride in their law-keeping. But in fact, they're doers of evil. And even worse than that, the third insult, in quite a disgusting image, the chief work that they boast about and they forced others to do, the mark of circumcision, Paul says it's just a mutilation for them. It's pretty strong stuff. But the strength of his language shows just how strongly they must be opposed. Watch out for them, he says. Paul says that to God, those who preach a way of salvation that requires faith and works are as filthy to him as a street mongrel is to a Jewish person. He says they are workers of evil. He says they are disgusting mutilators of the flesh. And it feels repulsive to us, but that's exactly it. It should repulse us. Because those who preach works as the way to earn God's favour deceive people into false confidence, which leads not to salvation, but to destruction. It's not the true faith, and it's a danger to true believers, as we know that we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Paul wants to affirm to the Philippians, that is what you are. You are true believers. Look at verse 3. We, those who worship by the Spirit of God, who have the Holy Spirit, those who glory in Jesus Christ, that is, those who believe his saving work is completed at the cross, that doesn't need 
anything added to it, those who place no confidence in the flesh, those who believe that their works do not count at all towards their salvation, we are the true circumcision. We are the true covenant people of God. That's what it means. Not them. And the danger for the Philippians and for us is that we do not look out for those who would come in with that message and so fall for it ourselves. Paul sees this danger and he wants us to resist doing what they do, which is this. They rejoice in their own religious pedigree and practice instead of rejoicing in the Lord. And here we're firmly into our second point. Verse 2 to 6. Beware rejoicing in religious practice, pedigree or practice. I borrowed that title from an excellent sermon by a guy called Tom Nash. And this is what the Judaizers were confident in. This is what they rejoiced in. To make his point, Paul gives us his own testimony, verse 2 to verse 6. Now, before I read that, just it got me thinking. A friend of ours, as you go into their house, they've got this chart pinned up on the, on the wall in their hallway, and the chart traces the lineage of their dogs uh, back into history. What it's, what's it for? Well, it's to prove the dog's pedigree. It's to prove that it comes from the right stock in an unbroken line, and that establishes its real value. Now, Paul here, he tells us his pedigree, and it's the purest of pure breeds. Verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As the law of Pharisee. Paul's got all the religious background that you could want. He has faithful parents who circumcised him. He has the sign of the covenant. Paul's not a convert to Judaism. He's born one. He has impeccable lineage. And he's high up in the most respected religious order, the Pharisees. Not only, though, does he have the pedigree, he can also boast of his exemplary religious practice. Verse 6, as to zeal, passion for God, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As if Paul's sort of saying, look, put their record up against mine and there's no competition. Now, it was really great to watch Emma at Raducanu last night in the US Open and she, when she won. And amazingly, she didn't drop a set for the whole tournament, which is really incredible. She has an unblemished record in that Grand Slam. It's really an amazing achievement. And Paul speaks here and he says, look, here's my list of multiple Grand Slams and you won't find a dropped set in all of them. What's your record like compared to that? You wouldn't find anyone more confident in his status and in his achievements before God than Paul the Pharisee. You wouldn't find anyone prouder of his pedigree and his practice. 
you wouldn't find anyone more delighted in where he came from or in what he'd done to serve God. And that's actually what religious folk are like, isn't it? They're confident in and they rejoice in their status and their achievements. They're good people, they say. They boast, I've been a member of this church for 42 years. They always know exactly how many years it is. Or they point to their hours of service as volunteers at this worthy cause. Or their work as advocates for these people in need. They love to tell of how much money their church has given to anyone who will listen, because of course that reflects on them. They delight, they find their joy and confidence in who they are and what they've done in the flesh. But here's the thing, as I was thinking about this kind of person, I began to wonder, is this my temptation as well? To to delight in my pedigree, in my practice. And it could be. I come from a Christian family, been a member of faithful, well-respected churches, volunteering to serve in various ministries, giving my money, hardly ever missing a Sunday or a prayer meeting, been to Bible college, preached hundreds of sermons. Do I place my confidence there? Do I delight in those things? Perhaps I am more like this than I realise. It's very easy to look at other people and think, well, I know people who are like this. But perhaps this is a bit more close to home. Perhaps it is for you as well. We need to know that if we're finding ourselves starting to think like that, we're playing with fire. Paul's teaching us that we must beware those who place their confidence in the flesh because before long we will do the same thing. We'll believe them, we'll copy them. Because there's just something in us that wants to trust in ourselves, that that wants to become delighted in our own ability to save ourselves through our performance. And it's spiritually dangerous. It's misplaced joy to delight in those things rather than in the Lord. But look at what Paul says next. This is Paul. Paul who has more reason to be confident in these things than anyone else who's ever lived And this is what he says, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Really is remarkable, isn't it, when you look back at that list. The Judaizers and those who follow them, they would tot up all that stuff in verses 2 to 6. And they would think that meant a great positive bank balance in their eternal accounts. But Paul says, all that stuff that I used to find such joy in, that I thought was gaining me favour with God, I discover is actually putting me at a deficit. I was delighting in that, placing my confidence in that, but it was actually getting in the way. It was a loss. And Paul's keen that we share his view of these things, because if we're tempted to return to placing our confidence in the flesh, we lose the gospel and we lose real confidence in our salvation, and we lose real joy, joy in the Lord Jesus. That brings us into our final point, verse 7 to 11. 
count those things as loss and gain the lasting joy of knowing Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And now he goes even further. Let me read verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them as rubbish. Rubbish is too polite a word. I think the translators got a bit scared of putting how rude this is. It's dung, it's excrement, it's filth. It's as if Paul has realised that, that he's turned up before God, offering what he thought was handfuls of precious jewels, precious treasure, only to open his hands before God and realise that it's actually a stinking, steaming, sweating pile of you-know-what. And it's shocking because Paul's talking about his good deeds. His best efforts are like that in God's sight. Until you come to realise that even your good deeds are like that in God's sight, you cannot gain, which is in comparison, something far, far greater and more wonderful you cannot gain the real treasure that is knowing Jesus Christ and the salvation and joy that he brings. In these verses, what follows is a wonderful description of what it means to gain Christ. And that will lead to our rejoicing in him. Now, several Christian thinkers point, point out that in these verses, in verses 7 to 11, gaining Christ means gaining three things that begin with R. It's to gain righteousness, relationship, and resurrection. Now, that's not actually the order in the passage, um, but it is the order in which we gain them uh, when we receive uh, Christ by faith. So it's righteousness first, then relationship, then resurrection. Number one, it's to gain righteousness. That is, to gain Christ is to be given as a gift his righteousness. Is there in verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now those of us who worked our way through Romans last year, you may be familiar uh, with this that when we come to realise that we're sinners before a holy God, that, that even our best deeds are filth before him, and when we through faith trust in Jesus Christ, a great exchange takes place. He takes my sinful record, my filth, upon himself to the cross. And there he receives the punishment that I should get. And in turn, he gives me his pure righteousness so that I get the reward that he should get. I give him my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And what a cause for rejoicing that is, our justification, that when the Father now looks at me, he sees the perfect record of his Son 
and he grants me access into his kingdom. Rejoice in the Lord and in the righteousness we receive. Secondly, it's to gain relationship. It's not merely our legal standing before God that we rejoice in. Paul says this twice in verse 8 and verse 10, that gaining Christ is to know him. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 10, that I may know him. Imagine for a moment that you're a refugee and you arrive in a foreign land applying for asylum and for citizenship. And of course you come empty handed, you've got nothing to offer. So you make your applications and you fall on the mercy of the courts. Eventually after a long wait, your permission to remain is granted. You're legally permitted to live in the kingdom. And that's great, it's wonderful news. It's reason to rejoice, certainly. And now imagine this. One day, the king of that land comes to the place where you're staying and he says to you, I've heard that you now have the legal right to live and work here. It's really great news. I'm so pleased. But here's the thing. I'm concerned for you and what you've been through. And I want to help you. If you'd like to, you can come to live with me at the palace. I'll take care of you. You will eat at my table and all your needs will be met. But more than that, I feel like we've got much to catch up on. I'd love to walk with you and talk with you and and hear of your life. And it's my wish that in time we may become best of friends. I know that's fanciful and that would that would never happen in our world but this is what it means to gain Christ it's not just to be granted legal citizenship in the kingdom that is cause for rejoicing but it's also to know the king personally it's to speak with him to share with him to have him as a friend and a brother to be loved by him with a love like nothing else in the world. Paul says there's no greater thing than that. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The Judaizers, well, they they knew of Christ, but they didn't know Christ. They couldn't know him for they were too busy rejoicing in themselves and in their own righteousness. But to the one who places no confidence in the flesh, well, they can know Christ personally. And what joy there is in that knowledge. Rejoice in the Lord. Third, is to gain resurrection. I said a little bit less on this one, but here's our final great joy in gaining Christ. It's in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now let me just tell you about my mate Rick. Uh, Rick was one of the other ministers at the church I was serving in. 
and uh, he increasingly he felt like he was called to go and serve God uh, in the central belt of Nigeria. Now he was, all, he was all ready to go with his wife and kids and just as he was preparing to leave, uh, there were increasing numbers of reports coming from the place he was to go to of violent attacks against Christians uh, in that region. And so the departure was delayed by about nine months or so. Now in that time, he faced all sorts of questions from people around him. Uh, they were questioning him as to whether it was wise to go there. Some felt he was being really foolish. He was putting them all at risk. And we were talking, we talk about this stuff, and I was asking him, look, look how do you respond to that kind of that question? And he was really gracious. He said, look, I understand where people's concerns are coming from. Of course, I have those concerns as well. But here's the answer. Why go to a place where suffering and persecution and danger await? Well, we're not being reckless. We understand the risk. We want to be careful. But at the end of the day, we're Christians and we believe in the resurrection. It's a remarkable answer. And it shows that he has gained what Paul describes here, this unshakable confidence, a joyful confidence that the resurrection belongs to us. When we come to gain Christ, we gain knowledge of the power of his resurrection now in the present. That is, we can face suffering and we can face persecution and we can even face death with joyful confidence. We experience his presence with us. We know his power, the power of his resurrection. We come to know him better as we face those things and we gain a certain hope of future resurrection from the dead. Rejoice in the Lord. So as we draw to a close, there is a danger that will derail us as a church. It's a danger that we begin to rejoice in our religious pedigree and our practice, that we rejoice in our status and in our achievements. It's a danger that we end up misplacing our joy, that we start to delight in those things instead of delighting in the Lord. We need to watch out for those who teach such things. We need to watch ourselves that we don't return to that way of thinking. And we need to be alert that our hearts want to. But here's how we're kept safe. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ, in his righteousness that he gifts us by grace alone. In the resurrection power that's at work in us and the resurrection promise that he gives us. And above all, rejoice in knowing him. We have intimate personal knowledge of the King. So let's rejoice. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for trusting, for taking delight and confidence from our own achievements, from our own status. Lord God, forgive us for that attitude which depends on ourselves. 
when we think we have contributed something to our salvation. Lord, we know we haven't. We know that even our best deeds are filth before you. And as we come to that point, we thank you so much for all the joy that we have in the Lord Jesus, that he has given us his righteousness, that we stand before you and you see us as you see your son Jesus, perfect before you. We thank you for the resurrection hope that we have. Please help us to trust in that promise of resurrection. And Lord God, we thank you most of all that we can know Jesus personally. We can know his love and his kindness and his goodness towards us. Help us to rejoice in these things. In his name we pray. Amen.